The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something special. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wonder what it is that we find fascinating about writers, in addition to reading their books. I mean, I wonder whether actually seeing or hearing or listening to the writers is um, somehow some sort of uh, affirmation of the the writing's existence. If you see what I mean, like you know, why would you want to see anybody who's achieved something? I don't know what it is, but but, but people do. They do because uh, they could just as easily go to a bookshop and and buy that book. But people turn up, events in their hundreds, and listen and enjoy and laugh and smile and applaud, which is great for the writer. But I'm not sure what it is for the audience. But it is quite different, as you rightly say. It's a very, very different uh, business uh, sitting at your desk and kind of slowly, slowly, slowly uh, unwinding these sentences onto is quite a different thing from uh, sitting on a stage or even sitting here talking to you and discussing your ideas, your thoughts in a way which is which is actually not stressful at all. I don't find any great deal of stress in the conversation we're having, Kilton. Welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. 2021 winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, Abdul Razak Gurna, spoke to me about life after becoming a laureate, the difference between authors and writers, and his latest novel, Afterlives. The Nobel Prize in Literature in 2021 was awarded to Professor Gurna for his uncompromising and compassionate penetration of the effects of colonialism and the fate of refugees in the gulf between cultures and continents. The Tanzanian-born British novelist and professor emeritus of English at the University of Kent has written short stories, essays, and 10 novels, including Paradise, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, By the Sea, longlisted for Booker Prize and finalist for the LA Times Book Award, and Desertion. His latest novel, Afterlives, has been described as a sweeping multi-generational saga of displacement, loss, and love set against the brutal colonization of East Africa. New York Times Book Review called the author a master of the art form who understands human failings and conflicts, both political and intimate, and how these shortcomings create afflictions from which nations and individuals continue to suffer needlessly generation after generation. In this file, Professor Gurna and I discussed finding global readers and acclaim two years after the UK release of his latest, the irony of becoming a Nobel laureate in literature, why he always writes the final episode first, the intergenerational trauma of war and how he chooses his protagonists, 
why you may be in the wrong business, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. Well, we are back on The Writer Files today, and I am honored to be joined by an esteemed guest today. Uh, we have the Nobel Prize winning author, Abdul Razak Gurna is joining us today. How are you feeling today, sir? Oh, feeling good. It's a bit warm here. Well, we've had a bit of a heat wave for England, and it's been going on a little bit now for, well, actually in a lot of places in Europe as well. Uh, it's been quite hot, sometimes as high as 40, which is unusual. Yes, and, and for, when you say 40, that's in Celsius. And of course, here we've also been having heat wave uh, in the 90s, Oh, wow. Fahrenheit. <laughs> so where are you? I'm in North Carolina um, on the east coast of, of the U.S. here. All right. Um, well, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, I understand you're an incredibly busy gentleman. And, of course, I want to talk all about the latest um, Afterlives and this incredible career. Let's go back a little bit, as we do with so many authors, and talk about um, this incredibly... Uh, winding and ascendant career of yours, but take us back to the before times a little bit and kind of, I'd love to talk about maybe the feeling you had at the publication of like your first novel when you were, I, I believe, in the midst of your PhD dissertation and, and you know, working as an academic um, and, and, you know, the kind of the cliff's notes of this uh, rise to Nobel laureate. It, it, it must have been a, a really interesting journey for you. Well, I was, I was writing that first novel while I was writing my PhD dissertation. By the time that it was published, that was several years later. And I was by then already um, uh, working as, uh, as an academic. In fact, I had been working as an academic for, for a couple of years, even before I went to the University of Kent. So what can I tell you? It took a while from writing the book and rewriting and rewriting to to, to its publication, um, which is, of course, not unique or strange. It happens to many, many writers as well. Getting that first book out, if you're lucky. What I mean is getting the first book out is not always the answer because it may get out and just go nowhere. But for me, it actually worked out reasonably well that once, once the first book was published and was well received and um, I found readers and of course I was working uh, as an academic so things came together quite well. It was always my ambition to do both things uh, even as a student when I was starting to think about writing as a as a profession I was also at the same time thinking that um, I would want to uh, I would want to uh, to be a university teacher as well because hmm. I didn't think that writing would would um, be, uh, you know, viable to live on, as it were. You know, it would be something that I would do because it was something I cared about. And of course, since the publication of that first novel, you have published many short stories and essays and, um, of course, 10 novels to date. And, yeah, how, how are you feeling about the reception of Afterlives? And I can't wait to talk about the book itself, but 
it seems a long time coming that, you know, obviously the, the Nobel Prize brought quite a bit of, of your work into focus, but how does it feel kind of now reaching a much larger audience and that transition for you? I know you've been <laughs> very busy speaking since, since the Nobel uh, announcement, but yeah, how, how are you feeling right now today? Well, it's, it's wonderful that it's uh, being published now in the United States and the, <clears throat> the early, uh, you know, kind of responses and reception has been uh, excellent. It's been just wonderful. Um, but Afterlives was actually published in the, in the UK in 2020. Um, so it's been, it's, been, um, it's been out for a, for a couple of years now. Um, I think uh, one of the, one of the uh, responses to the Nobel Award in the United States, as far as I can tell, is a kind of surprise. Uh, who's this guy? I haven't heard of him and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but in fact, uh, several of my books have been available in the United States. It's just that particular moment when the award was made, uh, they weren't all available. They weren't all in print. Um, which I think must be a fairly uh, regular thing that because you can't, or unless you're being predicted to win the Nobel Prize year after year, it's very likely uh, that uh, when an announcement is made, and it very often is unexpected, uh, then that writer's work is probably scarce because uh, most writers don't have you know, mountains of their books constantly available and in print and in bookshops. Hmm. But in any case, uh, that particular um, sort of um, not being particularly well known in the United States, it's, it doesn't mean that I didn't have readers elsewhere, actually. So it wasn't a case that, it was, that the Nobel suddenly made me known uh, all over the world sort of thing. Well, it has, but it wasn't, doesn't mean that I wasn't known anywhere in the world for <laughs> that. It's just uh, there are certain places where I had, readers and other places hadn't heard of my work. But that's the point, isn't it, about uh, awards and prizes, literary prizes altogether, except, of course, the Nobel Prize is a rather special one. But but that's the point about uh, literary awards, that it makes us readers uh, aware of work that perhaps we might not have come across. It tells us this is really good. Go read it. And that's the value of them, not just the the prize money that often also accompanies it, but just sort of making other, making readers aware of the existence of this work. Absolutely. Talk, I've spoken with a lot of authors about kind of the difference between being an author and being a writer on the stage. And of course, now you've experienced what it, what it feels like to be a Nobel laureate as well. So it's a, it's a little bit different story for you, but yeah, I mean, Talk a little bit about the difference between being an author, which requires you to, you know, sit in a chair uh, for hours on end in a solitary state, kind of living in your stories and in your mind, as opposed to being a writer on a stage where you're forced to um, answer questions from folks like myself. Um, you know, I mean, what is that? Is there some great irony there that that you know we're asking the author to? kind of enlighten us about their work when really, you know, m- much of your life's work is, is out there and it's, it's really kind of uh, subjective in a way. Yeah, I, I, wonder, I wonder what it is that we find fascinating about writers 
in addition to reading their books. I mean, I wonder whether actually seeing or hearing or listening to the writers is um, somehow some sort of uh, affirmation of the the writing's existence, if you see what I mean. Mm. Like, you know, why would you want to see anybody who's achieved something? I don't know what it is, but but, but people do. They do because uh, they could just as easily go to a bookshop and, and buy that book, but people turn up, events in their hundreds, and listen and enjoy and laugh and smile and applaud, which is great for the writer, but I'm not sure what it is for the audience. I mean, it must be great for them as well because they keep turning up. <laughs> but it is quite different, as you rightly say. It's a very, very different uh, business uh, sitting at your desk and kind of slowly, slowly, slowly uh, unwinding these sentences onto, you know, to your whatever you're writing on the screen for me is quite a different thing from uh, sitting on a stage or even sitting here talking to you and discussing your ideas, your thoughts in a way which is, which is actually not stressful at all. Uh, I mean, I don't find a, any great deal of stress in the conversation we're having, Kilton. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's okay, it's easy, you know, and you, you are the topic, <laughs> as it were. So in a way, it's very flattering as well. So how can it be painful? Yeah. But it is very different. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, I have heard you say that it makes actually actually getting writing done difficult becoming a laureate and yeah. um, joining joining the ranks of um, some you know s- storied and incredible uh, literary giants and lions. But that is true. It, that is completely true. Uh, that is t- to say, it, it, it's, uh, it doesn't go along with writing, but it's not a permanent condition. Because if you look at examples of our previous laureates, you know, they go on to write. If you think of uh, uh, Ishiguro, for example, is just recently a year or so ago released a new novel. Um, J.M. Kutsia has written at least another four novels since he won, etc. I imagine that in, it, it really is just in the immediate aftermath. The, the year after the award must be quite tough, especially if, as in my case, the uh, multiple editions coming out all over the world in different languages and so on and so forth. And each time that happens, like now, with the US publication of Afterlives, then there is a, you know, a kind of like a necessary uh, promotion exercise. As you and I, that's okay. That's part of the deal. As you that's part of 
what uh, a writer has to do is, is what makes it a little bit uh, like a lot of work is that there are so many new editions coming out for me. I mean, so that means I'm talking all the time instead of writing. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I'd love to talk about the creation of Afterlives. And as you've put it, you, you keep having to revisit the work, obviously. But talk a little bit about the, the genesis, the seed, you know, and, and it seems that, you know, going back to kind of, again, when you first started writing short stories and, and you know, journaling and, you know, before the birth of that first novel, some of the themes that were running through your work, talk a little bit about, you know, kind of these influences in your life that have pushed you in, in certain directions, but also talk about the, the importance or the meaning of the title, Afterlives, and um, the latest. Yeah, that's a whole big bunch of questions you put to me. <laughs> Sorry about that. So I'll take the last one first. That's always a good strategy. Okay. I'll talk about afterlives. When I started to write Paradise, or rather the first thing I wrote in the novel Paradise, which was published in 1994, the very first thing I wrote was what became the final episode, which was the recruiting drive for the German colonial army. So the, the, the young man in it, Yusuf, at the end of the novel, we see him running to join up, to join the uh, German colonial army. But that, in fact, was the, the very first thing I wrote, because I wanted to write a book, a novel about the war in uh, 1914-1918 war in the part of the world I came from, which is uh, now Tanzania. But I discovered, I realized that, uh, first of all, I didn't really know enough at that point, to do so. But I was also intrigued by other issues and other matters, like how did uh, this 17, 18-year-old boy get to the point where he would do something as strange as joining a colonial army? And also uh, the other thing that intrigued me was um, realizing that my father, who was quite elderly by then, in the, when I started to write it, that is, uh, in the late 80s, would have been a boy at about the time that uh, European colonialism was establishing itself in our part of the world. Hmm. So I became interested in what, how would it have seemed to a boy to be there, to see this, uh, this period of encounter, this period when strangers are taking over your life, your lives, I should say. So that's how I, I wrote Paradise. So those are the kinds of things that were in my mind. Then I went on to, well, I wrote it and then went on to write other things that were also of interest to me. The idea of, for example, you said what questions, the kind of questions that occur in my work throughout really, you know, like what is best? Is it best to stay? Is it best to leave and seek a better life somewhere else? That we are, as always, because that's who we are, surrounded by uh, injustices around us, whether they're exclusions or expulsions. The injustices happen in, in the open public spaces and they also happen in people's homes. So all of those are issues I'm interested in. But at some point, after retirement, actually, uh, in 2017, I retired from uh, an academic career and I had time on my hands. I was ready anyway. To, to write this book, I knew I was ready to return to that attempt to write about the history of, sorry, the history, to write about that period, 
that historical episode, as it were, of the war. So that's so I went back to it. But by this time, I'd had more or less a lifetime of thinking at the back of my mind, thinking about issues to do with that time, teaching some of it, reading about it. So I was much better prepared to to write that book that I thought I would write in the very late 80s. Hmm. So that's how Afterlives came, and it came relatively unproblematically when I, once I started. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I will mention just a brief um, description of the book, a, uh, Afterlives, a sweeping multi-generational saga of displacement, loss, and love set against the brutal colonization of East Africa. And yeah, the reception has been here in the United States has been pretty incredible to see. Washington Post had mentioned that it, that it is at once a globe-spanning epic of European colonialism and an intimate look at village life in one of the many overlooked corners of the earth. Um, and Time had mentioned it, a, a rich, detailed tapestry. Three separate storylines tangled together to probe the violence of European colonialism. The blurbs go on and on and on. The reviews have been stellar. Congratulations on the work. Um, talk a little bit about how you settled on um, or how these three different points of view came to you or, you know, these three interwoven stories of the protagonists in this uh, unnamed coastal town in German East Africa in the early 1900s, how this, how the, how everything kind of percolated to become this amazing final product. Well, I've already mentioned the, the one of the figures as it were, Hamza, well, I haven't mentioned him, but I mentioned somebody who joins up. So that's Hamza's story, the yeah. experience of war and uh, what happens to him subsequently. And I knew that uh, he was going to return to the town that he had lived in when he was younger, although it wasn't really his home, but he had at some stage in his life lived there. So I knew that he would return and that he would be wounded. He would return with a war wound, in other words. Because um, one of the things all along in my mind was so how did people who went through experiences like that, war, therefore wounding, trauma, in other words, how do they go about, as well, reclaiming their lives? How do they go about retrieving something from that trauma? And I thought it would be also very interesting to, to have him meet with somebody else who's also traumatized, a woman, in other words, and that these two would somehow be the, the ones that are able to support each other and therefore, for both of them, retrieve something from their own experience. So that's how how those two figures both came into my mind, and also why sooner or later they were bound to meet and to fall in love. Um, because that was the whole point, I said. This is, this is one of the ways in which people find that uh, ability to retrieve something, that is by, make, by making, by forming a relationship which is, reviving, revivifying. And in this case, that they were both in need in their own way, rather than one supplying, as it were, succor to the other. Hmm. The other story of the story of Elias, the other plot line, I suppose you would say, is... Um, Something that came to me at some stage during the writing. It wasn't, I didn't begin with it. But at some stage during the writing, as I was doing uh, my reading and research and so on, I came across the story of uh, a man called 
Mohammed Hussein Bayoume, who was uh, an Askari, a shoot trooper, and um, who, after the war, uh, he went to Germany, like some of the other, some of the other uh, soldiers did as well. The African soldiers did. Anyway, he went to Germany. He he was uh, he loved the Germans, and when he went to Germany, he in fact loved one in particular and married her, and lived in Germany for the rest of his life. What was left of it, and he was an actor, who became an actor, and appeared in several German films, usually as a Schutztrupper, dressed in that uniform, because there was still a great deal of interest in Germany in the idea of reclaiming the colonies, which had been lost in the armistice in the, at the end of the 1918 war. In fact, mm. it was a platform of the National Socialists, the idea of somehow or the other reclaiming uh, the lost colonies. There was even a Reich Colonial Bund, which is an organization whose work was to promote this idea. And Bayume, the real figure, as it were, uh, used to do things for them, you know, and, acts at various kinds. So when I read this story, I thought I would do, I would fictionalize that and have an aspect of that. So my figure, Elias, is in fact the brother of the young woman, Afia, and he disappears. They don't know where he is because for whatever reason, he's chosen to cut himself off. And the real story is that, in fact, he was in Germany and he had joined this, with a, a national socialist this, in this promotion of the idea of recolonizing various parts of Africa. So that's how those those two storylines, as it were, those two came up. Khalifa is a different thing. There's a third figure, but Khalifa then becomes, for me, the figure of the person who represents, in a sense, uh, the community he lives in, although he's not representative in the sense of speaking for anybody, mm. but he speaks for the values of the community in some way, or the best values of the community in some way. So he's a he's the slightly difficult but um, sensible person. That's as much as I think I should say without spoiling the pleasure. Okay, no spoilers here. Yeah, and and incredibly um, fascinating stuff and brought brought to life in, in such a uh, such an amazing way. Thank you for your work and um, for your wisdom. I'd love to. Pick your brain. I know we just have a few more minutes. Just then, kind of when you're when you when you aren't representing the Nobel Prize in Literature and representing that organization, and, and you have some time to yourself and you're percolating ideas. Talk a little bit about um, after you've kind of done done the research and you're kind of getting into the flow state of uh, the novel or the short story. You kind of can you describe to us like your best writing day? What does that look like? Uh, do you get up? Do you a pot of coffee and and crack your knuckles or put on some Chopin or you know like what what does the best writing day to you kind of look like? Yeah, um, yeah. Usually I'm up uh, and done with uh, all the usual things. Not coffee, tea. I'm a tea drinker. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, usually by about eight o'clock I'm at the desk. So, and usually I like to um, to have stretches of several weeks when I'm working, when I don't have anything else of importance to see to. Uh, and then I would work from eight o'clock till, well, obviously break for lunch, but till eight o'clock till maybe three in the afternoon uh, or earlier if things aren't going well. Um, but usually about three, then I would stop and 
um, having reached a good place. I always like to stop when I've reached a good place because then I know what I'm doing the next day. And then I would probably read for a couple of hours. So that was the, that's my usual sort of thing. Read for a little while um, and then call it a day and go and do something else. A bit of gardening, a bit of cooking, talk to friends, watch a bit of television, read, read some more, et cetera, that kind of thing. That's how it works. Well, we only have a minute or two left. Um, thank you again. The, the book is Afterlives. And I, you had mentioned um, in, a, in a previous interview about, you know, your advice to writers is simply to write. And I think you had emphasized that, you know, uh, at a certain point, if, if, if things aren't going well for you as a writer, that maybe you're in the wrong business. I'm quoting you. Um, can you just elaborate on that, that uh, thought? Well, there's no other way of doing writing except by writing. That's what I mean. You know, there is no trick. Uh, you just have to keep writing. And if it's not working out, then you keep going until you reach a point where you say, it's not working out, then maybe you're in the wrong business. I didn't mean that if it's not working out, you should just say, oh, forget it. Uh, I mean, you just keep going and keep going until you can't go on anymore and then put it all away and look somewhere else. It does happen. <laughs> I mean, it does happen that people have to make that that decision in the end, as well, and say, "No, I'm, this is not it." Thank you so much for your words and wisdom, and we wish you the best of luck. You too. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.